You know, there are messages about the love of God that we hear a lot and we need to hear more. But there's a balance because there's a judgment of God also. And the judgment of God is designed to drive us to him so that we not be judged finally. And this is a message that has to do with the judgment of God. It's always difficult to try to start in a book other than the beginning because you don't know how much the person knows about what came before. But hopefully most of us know what happened in the first few chapters of Genesis with the Garden of Eden, with God creating the world and the Garden of Eden and man sinning and this sort of thing. I'll just have to assume that you know a little bit about this. But first of all, there was a story that I heard about Adam out walking with his children one day. And as they're walking along, they come by a place and the children say, Dad, what's that place over there? He says, that's Eden. He said, what's Eden? And they said, what's Eden? And he said, that's where we used to live before your mother ate us out of house and home. (laughs) So now that we've got that truth established... We're going to be in the sixth chapter of Genesis for the most part. To go back just a little bit, and we're just going to sort of hop, skip around some. In the third chapter of Genesis, we read about the fall of mankind and the sin. God told Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of life. Excuse me, the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan in the form of the serpent said, don't listen to God. He really doesn't have your best in mind. You go ahead and eat. So Satan in the form of the serpent (coughs) tempted them and man listened to Satan. And the result of the rebellion was being separated from God and it caused them to be expelled from the Garden of Eden. But even in this separation, God promised that a Redeemer would come and that Satan would be defeated. You know, we can often see how important a section of Scripture is by how much space is devoted to it. And when we look at the account of where we're going to be, of Noah and the flood, we can see there's as much scripture devoted to Noah and the flood as there is from the time of the Garden of Eden all the way to Noah, hundreds of years. And as much time devoted to the time of the flood as there is from the end of Noah all the way to Abraham. So it's an important part of scripture. There are lots of people in the Old Testament that are considered types of Christ. What this means is that these people, the way they lived their lives and what happened to them 
show somewhat or some of the things that happened to Christ and some of the things that Christ did that provides for us. And Noah is probably a prime example of that in the Old Testament. Solomon said in the book of Proverbs, the memory of the righteous will be a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. That's pretty strong. The name of the wicked will rot. That means they will come to nothing. They will be buried and nobody will remember their wicked ways. In the flood, we can certainly see how this scripture applies. You know, so many people today see the account of Noah and the flood to be mainly a story for children. The focus is on the flood. It's on the animals. It's on the rainbow. But if they take the time to actually read what happened, what the Bible says, they're shocked at the extent of the devastation that came on the whole earth. And because they want to have a God that only loves and never judges, they see the story as a fairy tale, as a fable of something that really never happens. It's just a a nice story. But that's not what the Bible says. You know, when Jesus defended his ministry to the Jews, he said, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. You say you have life in me, you say you believe me, but you refuse to listen to what Scripture says. Jesus says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. The first five books of the Bible were written by Moses. Jesus says, Moses wrote about me. So what you see in these first five books of the Bible and all the rest of the Old Testament is a picture of Jesus. That's what Jesus says. The conflict between the seed of the woman, and seed means descendants, the conflict between the descendants of the woman and the descendants of the serpent had come to a crisis point before the flood. The effects of the fall were seen everywhere. There was corruption, wickedness, immorality, the destruction of the family. Scripture says that God was greatly grieved. And in His holiness, He determined to destroy all that lived except righteous Noah and Noah's family. God made a covenant. That's an agreement between two parties. It's a strong agreement that cannot be broken between two parties. God made a covenant with Noah and his family to preserve them, to deliver them from the water that was going to come. Why? Why Noah? Because Noah believed God and he He trusted everything that God said. 
when the final great judgment comes in the last days, those that trust in Jesus can be sure that they're going to be preserved too, just like Noah was in the flood. This may go over. It's so difficult when you've got a large number of people from so many different countries and you try to tell a story and they have no idea what you're talking about because they have not had this background. And this particular little story is it's from a cartoon in the newspaper, a cartoon called Peanuts. And years ago, in this cartoon, there are two people in it, a girl and a boy. And this particular cartoon pictures Lucy, a little girl, looking out a window and seeing a downpour, the rain coming down very hard. And she looks to the boy, whose name is Linus, and she says, look at the rain. What if it floods the whole world? And the boy says, it will never do that. He says, in the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promises Noah that it would never happen again. And the sign of his promise is the rainbow. And the girl says, you've taken a great load off of my mind. And the boy says, sound theology has a way of doing that. Sound theology, if you believe what Scripture says, then you don't have to fear. You can just obey the Word of God, and God says He has you in His hand. He will keep you. He will preserve you. There may be difficulties, but everlasting life is what you get. God confirms that kind of that word in, in verses like in Proverbs 10 when he says when the storm has swept by the wicked are gone but the righteous stand forever and before we look at the section of Genesis in chapter 6 just a quick a quick review of chapters 4 and 5 the first child that Adam and Eve had was Cain. And because of his anger and his jealousy of his brother, he killed him. And because of this, God sent him out from his presence and he made him to be a wanderer. He was a fugitive without any permanent place to stay. A wanderer again. And Genesis 4.11 says God placed a curse on Cain because he killed his brother. And this curse probably meant, again, that he had no permanent place to lay his, to lay his head. He would always be a wanderer. You know, the latter part of chapter 4 gives us a listing of the descendants of Cain, his children. And we can see that they follow the same path that their father fathered. They gave us the first people to work with metal, with musical instruments, and live in cities. They're symbolic of human civilization 
of human culture that builds great places with our God. And this, these descendants of Cain, remember Cain killed his brother, he was cursed by God, and all of the people that came after him, they were in that line that God turned, about, turned against. Abel was the brother that Cain killed. And he was the one that God was going to send the Redeemer. The one that's going to save us from the sins committed by Adam and Eve. And God is not going to be left without descendants to bring about the Redeemer. And so Adam and Eve had another son. And his son was named Seth. And the fifth chapter of Genesis tells us about the descendants of Seth. And the last one is Noah. And if we read in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, it says, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Men of renown means famous men. Now when you get into some of these scriptures in the Bibles, you've got different people that think it means different things. And we're in one of those sections right now. God said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for he is flesh. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. The three main views that we have of these sons of God and daughters of men. The first view from Augustine and Calvin and Luther and a lot of the early church fathers think that these people were the sons of Seth, the godly line, and the cursed daughter or the cursed line of Cain. So again, that's a view of a lot of the early fathers. The second view thinks that the sons of God were fallen angels and they were corrupt and that they corrupted the human race. And you see this in the book of Job where it says Satan and the sons of God came before man. This is uh, one of the earliest Jewish interpretations. And the third view sees that these sons of God were the tyrannical kings, the successors of Cain's line that took the normal, everyday women into their harem, the, the, the uh, daughters of, of the sons of God took the daughters of men. So it's a, it's a um, corrupt kings, rulers, this sort of thing. But nevertheless, whatever it means, 
we know that it means that Satan continues to subvert, to try to destroy the human race. He wants to draw people to himself and away from God. He succeeded in turning Cain into a murderer, but he failed to destroy the seed, the descendant of Adam through Seth that's going to be the deliverer. And then he says, God shall not strive with man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. And again, you've got two different interpretations here. Before the flood, men lived to be many hundreds of years old. Some of them eight and nine hundred years old. But afterwards, there was a dramatic decline in the age of man. He lived many, many years less than before. So, people, if you live hundreds and hundreds of years, I mean, we have difficulty right now thinking that we're ever going to come to an end of our lives. What if you lived 800 years? You would think, I'm going to be here forever. I won't worry about anything. Same thing that we do today in a much shorter lifespan. So maybe it's talking about the declining lifespan that's going to only be 120 years. But the second possibility is God said when he called Noah, they're going to be 120 years, and then the end is going to come. And a lot of people think this, because the, the way the Hebrew is worded, it could be either. So God gives Noah a 120-year head start to build the ark, and then the flood is going to come. The people in Noah's day didn't have any excuse for not listening to Noah. Because Noah, the Bible says, preached the coming judgment. Judgment if they didn't repent, if they did not turn from their sins, this is what's going to happen to you. But again, just like people today, the, the thought of judgment sounded like something that was crazy, that was never going to happen. Building an ark the size of a modern cargo ship took a long time. There were four, there were four men, Noah and his three sons, four people building a ship bigger than a modern battleship, as big as some of these cargo ships that haul goods all the way from the U.S. to China and around the world. So even if Noah hired some people to help him, it took a long time. And the scriptures say that God waited patiently, but there's always an end to God's patience. It doesn't last forever. <coughs> Verse 4 talks about the Nephilim who were the offspring of the ungodly, and that they filled the earth with violence. And in the eyes of the earthly people, the people that were corrupt, they were heroes. 
It says they made a name for themselves and they were famous. This is what Cain did when he named the city after his son. Instead of naming the city after God, he did the same thing that the people in the Tower of Babel did. They named cities for themselves. They exalted themselves with no thought of God. So now you've got a background of what society looked like before the flood. The godly line of Seth had been almost totally corrupted by the wicked line of Cain. And then in Genesis 6, 5 through 8, we read, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continuously. All man thought about was evil, wicked things. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds in the sky, for I am sorry that I have made him. But, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What a contrast between what God saw when he first created everything. When God first created everything, when he finished his creation, he said he looked at it and he saw that it was very good. And now God is grieved by man's great wickedness. He said every intention of the thought of man's heart was only evil all the time. So he saw wickedness that never stopped. If we look in the book of Revelation just very quickly, just two verses, in Revelation 9, 20 and 21, and I know I'm going through this quickly, but that's intentional. The book of Revelation, verses 9, 20, and 21. The background of this chapter in Revelation is the last days before judgment destroys the world and all the wicked people. And God is sending judgment and on this first part of the judgment a third of the people in the world are killed one third of everybody is dying and then verse 20 says the rest of mankind those that were left who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and silver, and of brass and of stone and wood, which can neither see, nor hear, nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. So, just like the days of Noah, God sends out judgment, and even though the judgment he sends out is fierce, 
people will not turn away from their wickedness. They won't turn away from their murders. They won't turn away from stealing. They won't turn away from destroying the family. They just keep on doing it. And it says that God was grieved. He was sad that he had even made man to begin with. The Hebrew says that God changed his mind. But this doesn't mean that God changes his mind the way we change our mind. This is a way that the Bible uses to speak of God's nature. God, the Bible says that God is not a man that he should repent. In other words, when God says something, he doesn't have to change his mind because he never makes a mistake to begin with. But God does allow for people to turn from their ways. When he says he's going to judge the wicked, what he means is that if you don't change, this judgment is going to come upon you. But if you do change, and you change your mind, then I will bless you. So God intends to judge the wicked. He intends to bless the righteous. And he calls on us to change our ways so that he can do good for us. It's not his, he has no desire to destroy. His desire is to comfort and to draw us close to him. But God, who is unchanging, does change if our behavior changes. It seems like he's changing, but he's not because he says all along, you change and I will bless. God's response to man's overwhelming wickedness was to reverse his creation order and to make a new beginning. In the first chapter, God prepared the land to be good for man and for his family. Now God is shown as the one who's taking away the good land from man when he acts corruptly and doesn't walk with God. Man's sinfulness does not just affect man, but it affects all of life. All living things are bound together. Adam and Eve's fall did not just affect them, but it affected all of creation. The ground was cursed. Women would suffer in childbirth. And now man, animals, and birds are going to die together in the flood. Verse 9 says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. <coughs> and there are four places in Scripture that tells us about Noah being a righteous man. And some people think this is why God chose Noah, because he was righteous. But really, there is no explanation given in Scripture as to why God chose Noah. It's simply a matter of God's choice. And it was not because there was something in Noah that caused God to favor him. 
Scripture again and again tells us that it's not because of us that God chooses us, but He chooses us for a reason known only to God. So you can't decide, I'm going to do really, really good things and God is going to be pleased with me. And therefore He will favor me. He will save me. He will call me one of His blessed people. It says that you have to come to God in repentance, recognizing there's nothing you can do, and calling upon the mercy of God. That's what it says in Romans. God's grace came to Noah because it pleased God to include him in his plan of redemption. The nature of the grace of God is that he gives it to people that don't deserve it. Because God chose Noah, Noah became righteous. We become righteous through the grace of God because God bestows on us his favor. We can't become righteous in a fallen world. A fallen world means a world full of sin and when we're sinful also. We can't become righteous through our own efforts because we've all been born in a a state of rebellion against God. So, we obtain righteousness through the grace of God. But as soon as God pronounced judgment on the earth, He also provided a way for the salvation of those that are righteous through His grace. God gave Noah every detail for building the ark to save his household, his family, and the animals. Here's the ark, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall. Those are the dimensions of the ark, maybe. The Bible uses the word cubic, which was a, a, a form of measurement in the Old Testament. Some Hebrew sees a cubic to be as much as 22 inches rather than 18 inches. And if it's 22 inches, that means the ark was over 500 feet long. It's a big, big ship. But it's not really a ship like we look at it. It's more like a barge with stories on it. A barge is something that floats on a river and carries a lot of heavy loads. But this barge, this ship designed by God, doesn't have any rudder and no sail. The wherever it's going to go is completely in the hands of God because there's no way to steer it. And that's just like our salvation. We're completely in the hands of God. Scripture says salvation comes from the Lord. So Noah believed the word of God and he built the ark 
even though he had never seen an ark before. And it's also probable that he had never seen rain before. Because before that time, Genesis says that a mist, sort of like a fine rain, came up from the ground and watered the earth. So the mist came up from the ground, not from the air. So Noah built an ark. Why? Because he had faith in what God told him to do. And everybody in the ark was saved. Even though Noah had never seen, he'd never seen a ship before, he'd never seen rain before, and he'd never seen a flood before. And that's the same way we're supposed to believe. We've never seen the resurrected Christ. We've never seen the risen Christ. But we believe in him believe in him because the word of God tells us so. Noah was saved by faith in the promised redeemer that was going to come. He believed God's word. And we are saved by the Redeemer that has come. What grace means, the word grace means it's an undeserved blessing that's freely given to us by God. And in talking about grace, we need to understand that there's a distinction between saving grace, the grace that God gives us that redeems us, that brings us to faith. There's a difference between that kind of grace, which is called saving grace or regeneration, regenerating grace, and common grace. Common grace means universal grace, grace given to everyone. It's called common because it's available to everyone. Common grace benefits people everywhere, whether they are Christians, whether they are anybody else. It doesn't matter who they are. In Matthew 5.45, Jesus says, He causes his, his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. The wicked benefit from common grace just like the righteous. The wicked farmer gets rain on his crops just like the good farmer. So common grace is available to everybody, but it's not saving grace. And in Noah's day, man's rebellion <clears throat> had reached the boiling point. They rejected the common grace that God gives to everybody, both the ungodly and the godly, to cause them to be able to live together. And because the wicked wanted total control, total dominion, they refused to extend common grace to those that would not bow before them. And by doing this, they shut off the common grace that God had extended to everybody. It's like the man sitting on a tree limb and sawing it off while he's sitting on it. They wouldn't extend the common grace to everybody else. And in so doing, they cut themselves off from the common grace of God. There was only a faithful remnant, a few people left. 
And God heard their cries for help. Man who was created good is going to be destroyed because of his wickedness. God promised there would not be a destroying flood ever again. But that's not the end of it because God promises next time it's going to be a fire. But after the fire, there's going to be a new era where everything is made new. No more death, no more pain, no more tears. We're going to also face God's wrath and destruction apart from regeneration, apart from saving grace in Jesus. Because it's saving grace. But in the in his mercy, in God's mercy, he calls all that hear to repent and to turn to him in Christ. In the last verse I want to read is in the book of Revelation. The 22nd chapter, <clears throat> the 17th verse says this, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. So if we're thirsty, if we want eternal life Jesus says come to me come to me and you don't have to face judgment because I've already faced the judgment for you come to me and be saved let's pray Lord this is a, a quick thing and some things difficult to understand but Lord what we do understand is that you hate wickedness and you love righteousness. And we understand that righteousness comes from you. It's all your grace. It's your overwhelming mercy toward us. And I pray that all of us would call upon the name of Jesus, that we might have life eternal and joy unspeakable and full of glory. Amen.